Hello, and welcome to the Glossy Beauty Podcast, our weekly show where we discuss the future of the beauty and wellness industries with the people who know them best. I'm your host, Priya Rao, beauty editor at Glossy. And today's guest is John Dempsey, executive group president of the Estee Lauder Companies. In this episode, we talk to John about how the Estee Lauder Companies is the only conglomerate that makes a pure play in luxury, how some of his brands are starting to blur the lines between skincare and cosmetics, and what he means when he says people buy products, but they join brands. Hope you enjoy the episode. Today on the Glossy Beauty Podcast, we have John Dempsey, the executive group president at the Estee Lauder Companies. Welcome, John. Uh, thank you for thank you for inviting me. Happy to be here. We're excited. I, I am too. So, John, tell us a little bit about your path into the beauty world. You know, you're not the classic um, beauty consumer. Um. Hmm, that's a good question. Am I a classic beauty consumer or not? Actually, I'm a beauty junkie in my own way, but um, my path is um, sort of like everybody's path in some way, shape, or form. Everybody comes from someplace. Um, I grew up in the Midwest in a um, in a sort of you know upwardly mobile industrial town, Cleveland, Ohio. Growing up in Shaker Heights, and um, my um, my parents were. Um, Super, um, super evolved, super creative. My mom is a painter. My dad was in the steel business. And my mom and my grandmother, as many Jewish families, had a long tradition of taking care of themselves and being very um, outwardly as well as inwardly focused in terms of their beauty and their fashion and their persona. And my, my grandfather, my mother's father, was in the knit yarn business and was the was the supplier of record for a designer in the 1960s who was Rudy Gernwright, mm. who created sort of like the mono bikini, the topless bikini, and no, my mom did not wear a topless bikini, but <laughs> but you know, so I had a a bit of a fashion angle already into the family, and my 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 mother's mother had a first cousin. Who was we? He was cousin Bernie, but we referred to him as Uncle Bernie because he was the most successful and wealthy person that we knew. Who um, grew up in Chicago and originally made a killing in the air conditioning business after the Second World War, and then started the fragrance business. And actually, he had created Jovan and Jovan Musk, which was the beginning of Beecham products and sort of the sexual revolution of fragrances um so that was always sort of in the background of um someone in the family um actually did something in the fragrance business my mother's family had some association with fashion and i grew up in a an aspirational town not in the center of the grid but still plugged in so that's how you got there somewhere someone somebody from Nowhere but a somewhere. So, so when you thought about what you wanted to do as for a career, you know, was fashion and beauty, you know, seemingly accessible and available to you? Well, it's um, it, I'm not an overnight sensation, and it 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 was in part by grand design and part by accident. I was very interested in entertainment, and music, and film, and fashion. And art, I was trained actually as a 
kid is sort of a fine painter. And I had toyed even with the idea of um, becoming an artist and or going to film school or going into the entertainment business. And at the same time, the more rational side of myself was very much attracted by advertising and retail. And the beauty business in my mind was um, super interesting to me because it was a business about selling hopes, dreams, and aspirations. And I don't think I really fully understood what I was aspiring to join and how I was going to be part of it. But I remember I, um, I read Fire and Ice as a, as a, 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 in, you know, in high school and read the story about Charles Revson and read the story of Helena Rubinstein and Estee Lauder herself and all these great beauty entrepreneurs. And I was super, um, I was super interested in it. So I, I went to Stanford University. I got a degree in economics. I studied in Paris for about a year and a half. And during that time period, I, by lucky accident, found an apartment um, in the International Herald Tribune that was um, in the same building that Andy Warhol's French factory outlet was running. So I, here I was, this sort of prepped out Midwestern kid sitting in Paris, sort of on the, on the fringes of sort of the factory in the um, in the late 1970s, and I knew and met people who were in fashion and in beauty, and I sort of was super interested. Um, graduated from Stanford and um, tried to get a job actually in the beauty business right away and actually didn't. Um, went to NYU Business School, graduated in the early 1980s during one of the Great Recessions, and... Um, applied to um, every beauty company um, in New York and um, actually in Paris at the time as well. And I remember um, a friend of the family who was a merchant in Cleveland had said to me, you know, what you really need to do is to get valuable on-the-ground experience and to understand the way that the ecosystem works. And I don't know exactly what he meant by that, but I started interviewing at advertising agencies and fragrance house suppliers and um, in retail. And as luck would have it, a friend of a friend of a friend of a friend, knew Rosemary Bravo, who was working at Macy's, and she was the um, the head of the, the divisional merchandise manager for, um, for beauty at Macy's. And I went into the Macy's executive training program. And began my career basically in a buying office. Um, was not successful, actually, in my first job. Um, then was not working with Rosemary and worked for somebody else who told me that she didn't think I'd ever amount to anything in this business. Ended up in the Sergio Valente jeans department in Parkchester in the Bronx and um, quickly came to realize that this, this, this that was not for me and um, immediately went to work for Bloomingdale's and right on the floor in those days, in the it was just sort of the golden years of Giorgio Beverly Hills and Calvin Klein Obsession, all the mega launches and fortnights and promotions and such, and actually began working at Bloomingdale's in beauty, actually f- scheduling all the fragrance spritzers on the floor. And, you know, from that point, I was 
everybody's assistant. I mean, it was Bob Chavez's assistant, who's the head of Hermes now, and a dozen other people, and ended up going to Saks Fifth Avenue and became a fragrance buyer. So over the course of 10 years, um, being the guy who never could hold a job, I got an amazing, varied experience working in retail and actually meeting all the great beauty entrepreneurs really the last 40, 50 years. And um, because some of them were more senior along the way when I arrived. And I got a lesson um, from the ground up. And that's really how I started. I started from the ground up. I started super junior, super granular, super basic, and involved in absolutely anything and everything. And probably that was the greatest gift that anyone had ever given me, was not getting what I wanted when I wanted it. John, when you think about you know your career prior to Estee Lauder, which you joined in 1991, yes, um, you know the beauty industry has changed quite a bit since being at Estee Lauder, and you know since you starting in the business on that fragrance floor in Bloomingdale's. Can you talk to us a little bit about how you think you know the overall industry has changed, as well as what the expectations are of the customer? Well, gosh, it's, it's probably changed in the last ten minutes since we've been talking here, but um, the the world has gone through an evolution for a lot of different touch points. First of all, beauty. Well, to start off with what remains the same or what remains constant. Beauty is a universal aspiration. Everyone in the world wants to look their best, feel their best, and project their best selves forward. No one thinks that they look too good, and no one thinks that they couldn't take a little advice or do a little bit better. So this constant striving for fulfillment or aspiration for perfection or for putting one's best self forward, regardless of your cultural orientation, goes back to the beginning of humanity and goes back to the animal species. So so beauty beauty has always been and I believe always will be an important business opportunity because people will always aspire to improve themselves. Now a lot has changed in terms of what those products are, where you buy those products and how you communicate about it. The um the prestige beauty business actually was born <clears throat> out of the more selective distribution of European perfumeries. And back in the day, in the late 40s and 1950s, of um, little specialty stores or fashion boutiques that existed in every city, in every state in the United States, or all of the developed markets in Western Europe around the world. And they were boutique provenance brands. So you, you have basically um, brands that were born out of maisons or houses that came from, you know, whether it was Francois Cody or Guerlain. And you had um, really um, the whole notion of what a designer was or designer business really goes back to Arpege, Lanvin, Chanel. And those things actually bubbled around in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, but it was really, and when I entered into the business into the 
80s, the business had gone from being um, sort of a niche selective business or a business that was done in um, drugstores for local pharmacies to what has evolved into a very um, complex tableau of all sorts of beauty offerings sold in all sorts of beauty places. And in the 80s, it was an easy distinction or delineation between what was luxury, what was prestige, what was mass, and what was, you know, sort of commonplace. And price point and positioning were defined very much by distribution. And brands were defined by the provenance of where they came from or where the authority came from. So you were a French brand, a British brand, a Japanese brand, or an American brand. And um, that was sort of the way that it worked. And there were sort of the matriarchs of the industry that came from very unique founder dynamics with a hell of a lot of personality muscle. And there was a very strong entrepreneurial bent to the business. And over the course of um, the close of the last century, a lot of these entrepreneurs or legacy founders passed and their businesses passed to big multinational companies. And some of them became more consumer product oriented. And at the same time, um, companies that had um, a level of concentration of doing things certain, certainly, certainly well, like the Estee Lauder companies that were focused more on the luxury and high touch aspects of the business, gained more and more success. And um, the person who's probably taught me more about the evolution of the business, and now I'm part of the history of the evolution of the business itself, is Leonard Lauder. And he talks a lot often about when he refers to the industry, beginning with the advent of the freeway or the highway. So as the freeway and the highway came into existence in the late 50s and 60s, so came the malls, so came the branch stores, so came the branded installations in those stores. And over the course of time, the evolution in terms of how people transport themselves, whether it was from a city to the country or whether it was from one country to another country or from a developed market to an emerging market or an emerging market to a developing market, um, that has become more and more rich and more and more driving sort of the sources of aspiration and growth. And um, so in the developed world, particularly in the U.S. and in Western Europe and, you know, probably, you know, post-war Japan and Korea, um, the business has developed along the way that the distribution has developed and at the same time the way the media has developed. And what every decade seems to have a shift or a seismic effect that takes place in terms of how people communicate or how people establish aspiration or tell their unique stories. So whether it was in, you know, Colgate Palmolive sponsoring radio broadcasts or it was Revlon sponsoring game shows or it was the advent of Vogue and Harper's Bazaar and Allure in the magazines of the world or then the whole emergence of home shopping or QVC or HSN and then comes you know, the internet and the whole notion of websites and domain names and search and 
influencers and e-commerce and new ways of selling. So as the world has become more complex and as these things have become much more digitally centric and more specific, it's been a big boom to the entrepreneurial development of the beauty business and has borne a new seamless, continuous development of new generations of consumers who find and learn about products in completely different ways. And I don't know if anybody you know saw that article that was written in the New York Times about f- four weeks ago, and it was talking about 1994. Yeah. And what happened in 1994 and what in 1994, you know, the cell phone was in your car was still attached to a co to a, to a cord. There was no internet. There was no AOL. There was no search. Everything was still basically based on local media, local media dynamics. And basically the emerging markets like the, the Eastern Bloc, like Russia, like the Middle East, like China, like Korea, like Southeast Asia, those markets were just beginning to emerge and had not actually joined the consuming populations of the world. So I've settled a lot here, but the world fundamentally has changed. And the customer and the emerging customer continues to arrive every single minute and every single hour from around the world. So you have all these pockets of emerging consumption and emerging aspiration and people wanting to trade up or to take their beauty regimen to another level. And um, and then you have the advent of what's happened in derm and medical procedures and, you know, so it's become um, beyond creative, um, beyond interesting, and in some respects, very complex, get pretty basic and simple. So the basic human aspiration of beauty and wanting to feel good about yourself remains true and consistent like it was from the very beginning. But the way that you communicate with people or the way you get personal or the way that you understand someone's behavior or the way that makeup is used in terms of transformation or the way that people accept inclusion and diversity or ageism or what does it mean to be, you know, to be 50 years old today is to be a very young person. To have been 50 years old 30 years ago, you were considered to be old and considered to be obsolete. So um, the, the industry has changed a lot. It continues to change. And the new ways of communicating have actually born a whole new generation of new entrepreneurs and new beauty authorities that have been able to leverage their voice to create products and to create communities and to create real business. So 
John, you've been very involved with Mac. You know, yes. you were one of the you were the president there when it was first acquired by Estee Lauder, and was very much involved with that development of that story. And you know, Mac is one of those brands that really kind of always saw influencers had the right yes. message, had yes. the proponents of inclusivity and diversity in its DNA. You know, now that's so much at the forefront, and. But it's an older brand considerably can compared to some of these DTC brands that are coming up. How do you remind people that you were there first? Well, actually, it's it's interesting because people always assume that Mac started sort of like when I came on board. I came on board in 1998. The brand actually had existed since 1984. And so it was not an overnight sensation. And the core tenets of artistry and inclusivity and charitable heart were there for a very long time. I like to think that I was lucky to be there with the most amazing brand and to be able to activate the community aspects of what the brand is about. Interestingly enough, um, I, I, I like to say Mac was the the original OG. I mean, it 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 and it and it really was and continues to be. But um, a lot of the overnight sensations that people think that have found huge success in a digital consumer direct way have been around a long time too. Actually, Too Faced, which is a brand that we recently acquired, has been around for over 20 years. I mean, Urban Decay did not arrive five years ago. Um, A lot of the brands that, you know, today are perceived as um, new or different, actually found their voice or found their mojo in the new ways of communicating. Do we have to continue to tell the story? The answer is absolutely yes. Um, They say, based on research, that um, if somebody hasn't heard it in the last 36 months, they've never heard it before at all. And um, that's been a valuable and perhaps sometimes painful lesson for me and others that we always assume that everybody knows who we are or knows what our products are all about or know what our differentiation is or what makes us unique or what our unique selling proposition is. And in today's digitally savvy, influencer-powered, product-powered world, you have to bid for acceptance and relevancy every single day. And um, I believe for Mac specifically, the story is true and authentic, and it's not a marketing ploy. And um, so we today at Mac in a very different competitive world than when I first entered into the brand 21 years ago, authentically are going back to telling our story in authentic ways so that new generations can understand it. But um, listen, um, imitation is the greatest form of flattery. And um, people, you know, I go back to when my my mother used to, there used to be a place in New York where we used to buy cosmetics on Madison Avenue. It was called Boyd's Chemist. My father used to get super pissed off and my mom would go to Boyd's Chemist and she would come back and she would buy all this like Swiss product and we say, well, what did you spend like, you know, two hundred dollars on, on all that product? And she said, well, I, I bought it. And she said, well, well, why did you buy it? And she said, because it, it's from Switzerland. And she said, yeah, and so. And she said, because they told me it was good. 
because Swiss, Swiss was better. So, you know, sometimes whoever tells the story first gets the first trial. Whoever actually has the broadest, pro- best product gets the repeat. And um, So when you think about how you're telling that story today versus how you were telling it maybe 20 years ago on any of these brands, what are the new tactics that you think the Estee Lauder companies are using and using well? Well, clearly, um, community matters and um, authentic and real and transparent conversations matter. It depends kind of where you enter into the ecosystem because different markets have different dynamics. So um, psychographics and brand positioning and price point and authentic storytelling, in my mind, are super, super, super important. Um, How we're doing that, and we have a broad portfolio of brands competing um, against a broad portfolio of competitors and competing against each other. So every single day when somebody goes to work, you need to ask yourself the question, why us? Why this product? Why is this product relevant? Why is this more important than somebody else? And why should I buy into it? And what are the core values of the brand and the company and the product that make them heroic? So we 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 focus on many things. First of all, um, without question, first and foremost, is product quality and the, um, the quality of the, our formulations. To me, that is a non-negotiable and something that the Estee Lauder companies prides itself on, that we are the best product formulator bar none, and we believe that that is table stakes. Secondarily, it's the combination of amazing quality product with authentic storytelling and brand brand uniqueness and brand characteristics and things that define sort of the value systems and unique DNA of what a brand is about. And people buy products, but people join brands. And the careful balance between joining or welcoming a brand into your home at the same time having a product that you're obsessed with and that you want to continue to buy over and over and over again is a key is, is, is the key to any long-term successful business. But being a brand-building powerhouse and being focused on the unique product development, creativity, and we like to say, um, people say the last mile, we like to say the last five inches or the last five feet, that the Estee Lauder companies has always understood that high-touch relationships, whether they be through demonstration, through artistry or consultants or beauty advisors on store, or even today online, or understanding how to communicate in a digital way that sees the customer as a unique individual and makes that experience tailored to that individual. In our mind, the combination of our brand building capabilities, unique product development, product development expertise, research and development, but focus and dedication to high touch and authentic relationships and communities is what defines the company. When you think about that brand loyalty piece, you know, a lot of other people say, you know, people aren't brand loyal, they're product loyal these days. So when you think about something like Too Faced, which is so, has such a fervent audience. God, and yes. they, huh? They do, yes. <laughs> they have such a fervent audience and, you know, they've always been strictly known for makeup. How do you make something like that, you know, 
have legs and scale into something like skincare, which is something that they're doing now, and to other categories and make the customer also feel that loyalty. Well, Too Faced is a very good example of um, all the right stuff from the very beginning. I don't know if you've heard the crazy story, but the crazy story was Jared and Jeremy worked for me when they were counter managers at Estee Lauder in the early 1990s. And actually, they founded Too Faced when they were Estee Lauder employees and were selling the products at Nordstrom on their lunch break. And there was an editorial in Vogue magazine that talked about the Estee Lauder countermanagers and their new line. And I got a call from the corporate PR department saying, what the hell is going on here? And I had to go to the two of them and said, well, what's going on here? They said, well, why is this a problem? And so the two of them, from they came from beauty counterculture. They were disciples of Estee Lauder. They were art students. They loved makeup. They loved skincare. They loved fragrance, and they loved product. And when they created Too Faced, they built the brand from what they knew from dealing with real women and how they bought products. And the brilliance of Jared and Jeremy was that the first thing that they observed went from, 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 from counter dynamics was that women would come over and pick up a cream or a lipstick and they would smell it. And they wouldn't always go for the shade or how it would look. And they, they sort of understood that the sensorial aspect of a product, along with the packaging, the service, and the product itself, was super important. So Too Faced began from the very beginning with scent and flavors in the product itself. And I, actually, I didn't even realize until I really, you know, got into the tent with them and we became, you know, in business together that how important the sensorial aspect of the peach palette was or how important it was that the foundations had a certain, you know, olfactive direction. So there was that sensorial aspect and then they understood the power of putting it out there. So better than sex mascara. Um, right now, the number one selling mascara in Sephora around the world is Damn Girl. And Damn Girl is a revolutionary mascara. And I believe that it's revolutionary because it is a revolutionary, amazing product. But it's more amazing because of the two of them and the way they, they, they tell the story. So they have a connection and a deep understanding of how to sell beauty products and what the two-faced girl wants. And they talk a lot about their girl. And what they noticed from, from, from their perspective was that their girl was starting to feel a bit confused and to feel the blur between hybrids and her skincare regime and the beauty products that she was using. So they had a happy sort of success. Maybe it was by grand design or maybe it was by accident, but they have something called the hangover spray, which is a makeup set finish primer, which has sort of skincare benefits. And um, we're launching products now in that skincare realm and in that skincare positioning. And 
going in the layer between what, where does skincare begin and end and where does makeup start? So, um, why not? When you think about your history, John, at Estee Lauder Companies, you've been very involved with many of the brands that you guys have acquired and have inherent founders from the get. Yes. When you think about some of those brands today and making them bigger or scaling them, whether it's La Labo or any of the, or even Tom Ford Beauty, yes. what are you thinking about now that you may have not thought about, you know, 20 years ago when you were doing it with Mac? Well, for starters, um, I like to say when I came to work for Estee Lauder, people don't actually think of this, but I think of Leonard Lauder and William Lauder and the Lauder companies as a founder company. So the company exists based on the original tenacity and quality obsession and beauty obsession and communication with women from Estee Lauder herself. So when people say, well, who was the founder of Estee Lauder? The founder of Estee Lauder was Estee Lauder and her family. So it was it was the collective family idea of understanding that uniqueness of a founder. And I was lucky enough to know Estee Lauder when I was working in retail. She used to come in on Sundays and do makeups when I was working on the floor at Bloomingdale's. And I used, you know, she so she was she was very, very involved in the business. And I I believe that every business becomes successful for a reason. So somehow you have a hero product or you tell an amazing story or you make an amazing connection that gives you permission to exist. And then all the rest comes from the authentic building out of a line or a brand story or a brand. So having worked with founders who are no longer with us, founders who have left our company, or founders who are still very much involved with their business, I still use the same lens of trying to understand what was the unique story or the unique angle that that brand had, and what's the modern day equivalent of that story today, and what will that story be tomorrow, and which customers and which markets and which segments of the market does that story have the ability to spread its wings? So every brand starts with something unique or special. I mean, Joe Malone began out of a skincare salon. The original Joe Malone products were skincare products. The bath oil that was given to the A-list clientele that went to Joe herself was the baseline of what built Joe Malone or the house of Joe Malone today as being one of the leading fragrance houses in the world. So Estee Lauder began her business with four products, four skincare products. It wasn't till Youth Do, once again a bath oil actually, that became the first big mover in terms of the success of something that overtly took Estee Lauder forward. Mac, um, it wasn't till there were some amazing core products, but it wasn't until that clear lip gloss or that spice pencil that actually, or that original Russian red lipstick and that saturated matte texture that was something that the world had never seen before. So, um, like that. When you think about, you know, what some of the other big beauty corporations are doing right now, whether it's, you know, through acquisition or acquiring or incubating talent in-house, is that something that you think that you guys are looking at fervently or, you know, are considering? 
well, first of all, um, I view everybody and everything is meaningful. So I never discount any trend, any competitor or any company. So great companies and great brands come from everywhere. Um, the ability to sustain a business and to build a global business is hard. And so clearly, or at least from, from my perspective, a lot of the indie brands that have migrated to companies such as ourselves would never reach their full potential unless they had somebody who had the access to all those markets and the ability to actually build those businesses in the appropriate way. So, um, so yes, sources of growth are super important for all companies. New ways of selling and new ways of engaging customers are dramatically changing. And the consumer direct dynamic in the marketplace um, is something that is an old idea, but actually a very digitally savvy new idea. So there are lots of new disruptors in the marketplace. Some of them born within us, some of them acquired by us, some of us very much always looking, always asking, always trying to understand. But um, we want to be the best portfolio of prestige beauty brands in the world. And we are the only pure play in luxury beauty. The difference from Estee Lauder and some of our amazing competitors are that we're only focused on the high end of the marketplace. So we have a lens in terms of the customer that we want and the aspirational price point and quality positioning that we want to entertain to be a high-touch luxury company. So that's our lens. Having said that, um, you know, when the company bought Creme de la Mer way back in the day, I think it was sold in 20 doors around the world on a cube on Saturdays from a freelancer. You know, telling the story of Max Hubert. So, and now look what has happened with that. So, you know, being able to see the future. You know, Leonard likes to say, if you can't see the future, you'll never get there. Sometimes the patterns already exist in the market. It's just understanding when it's there, whether it's underneath your feet, over your shoulder, or someplace else. Last question, John. When you think about um, these digitally native upstarts and what you guys could be doing more of, are there areas or pockets within the company that you think or brands that are ready to be more digitally focused than, you know, this high-touch service aspect that you see in a department store or in a Sephora? Well, first of all, our unique, we have the largest brand.com businesses in the world. And we believe the reason why we do is our approach to online actually is high touch. So the, the way the consultation process and the way that you actually can interface with an analyst or a makeup artist, actually we try to bring the high touch service element directly to the online environment as well. And particularly now with the omni dynamics of people really, you know, trading between physical retail and virtual space, we, we see that as very important. There is a part of the world that is very much powered digital first. If you go to China and you go to the ecosystem of Tmall and Alibaba or into the WeChat or the Little Red Book you know, system, 
those are digital first communication mechanisms and everything is mobile first and all the brands that scale in China scale digital first and high touch digital first with authentic brand brand storytelling and 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 living that way so there are parts of the world where that transformation happened and then you know we're in varying degrees of um development in the rest of the world some markets are still very old school in terms of their distribution and their media touch points and then there are markets like the US that are going through rapid fire evolution in terms of what is prestige what is luxury how do i find out about something how do i buy something can i buy from instagram can i buy online and we believe today that um if you're going to be here tomorrow that that's the playing field so i you know clearly in my mind um it's easier in makeup because makeup as a digital engagement you see a before and an after and there is a piece of personal transformation that you can look and see and sort of share skincare also has deep learning and understanding and claims and benefits and regimes and all the rest but it it goes to a little bit of a a, a deeper level and then fragrance which is harder to sell a scent without being able to really have that high touch experience we've actually had tremendous success doing visual sampling digitally with Tom Ford private blend which you know which we sell unbelievable amounts of fragrance online and you would think that's a virtual impossibility i think in terms of high touch also it's the way that you look at it a digital first mindset is where the consumer journey starts so whether you're in search or whether you're on a brand.com or you're in a platform you may buy it at that moment or you may be going there to do the research that then you're going to store to have your makeup done or to have a skincare consultation and then you'll go back online and then you'll go into social then you'll go to a retailer platform and then maybe and then maybe go to your doctor and maybe go someplace else so that seamless sort of engagement and that 360 envelopment in terms of how a customer feels a brand or feels your product assortment we believe at the Estee Lauder companies that that we that's what we do best. Perfect. Thank you so much John. It was great having you. Thanks. Thanks for inviting me. And thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode. A special thanks to Gianna Capadona, the producer of this podcast. If you've been enjoying the Glossy Beauty podcast, be sure to rate and review our show wherever you're listening. It helps new listeners discover us. And to keep up with all of Glossy's beauty and fashion news, make sure to follow us on social media at Glossy Co. We'll talk to you next week.